0: It is 4.32 p.m. on Tuesday, October the 8th. I am here in the Barney Davis building on Denison's campus speaking with Professor Jessica Hendry-Nelson. She is a professor of creative writing here at Denison and the author of the book, If Only You People Could Follow Directions. Professor, thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Um, Well, it's also an honor to be sitting here in your office, so the feeling is reciprocated and mutual so professor this week um as i uh promoted we're going to be talking about stories why we tell stories why humans are drawn to stories um why you as a writer and a professor of writing tell stories um what different people's stories look like and since it is october and around halloween uh, our attraction to scariness in our stories if that's okay with you
1: well, that's interesting. Scariness in stories. Well let's start let's talk about storytelling first. Sure. So um, one thing I like to tell all of my a little story I like to tell all of my introductory creative writing students, mm-hmm. uh, so this is a story you may have heard before, it is about the role of storytelling in our survival, our very survival as a species. So, you know, once upon a time, we were tribal, we were migratory, right? And, um, and and you know, as 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 a species as we were developing, there were different tribes who conducted the business the business of living differently. And some tribes spent all of their time and energy trying to take care of the bear basic essentials of survival. You know, what Maslow would call those lower order needs, food, shelter, safety, procreation, right? So they spent all of their energy either hunting, gathering, uh, procreating, or sleeping. And then there were other tribes who did all of those things, but also spent time telling stories, right? Telling stories around the campfire. And what, you know, some of these tribes died off some of them flourished the ones that we uh, descended from are the, are the storytelling people so we are the storytelling people so um, what this shows us, what this proves is that storytelling actually helps us survive and the reason that those stories helped us survive is because they gave us a framework of moving through the world that made a kind of sense out of what is ostensibly chaos right the experience of living Mm-hmm. All of the sensory information we we um, encounter every day, all of the experiences we encounter every day. Um, so without story, we don't have a kind of, we don't have a mechanism or structure to make sense of all of that, right? So, of course, you know, it, it makes the world a much scarier, right, and harder place to navigate, Um so that's how stories and stories still function this way. So, you know, way back in the day when they're telling stories around the fire, they're telling stories about finding the woolly mammoth and where they found the woolly mammoth and how they conquered the woolly mammoth and how they butchered the woolly mammoth. Right. And not to go down by the river because there's a saber tooth tiger that will eat you. And, um, you know, and, and also at, during this time, you know, hyenas would, we would, you know, we were being decimated by hyenas. They were collecting human bones by the bushel, right? But then we learned how to tell stories about hyenas. We turned, told stories about how to conquer hyenas, and then we did conquer the hyenas, right? So that kind of framework helped the species navigate, you know, this complex place. So it's still that way today and and ever more pressing, right? And we see that every day as we try to navigate our very complicated lives made ever more complicated by the advent of the Internet, of course, and social media and um, et cetera. So this, you know, we tell stories uh, in order to understand how to live, Right?
0: Well, and that's such an interesting thing that you brought up, social media and the internet. It seems like those have given us an opportunity to be storytelling more than really ever before, sometimes not in great ways. But, um, you know, we now have forums for opinions whenever we want to share them, um, forums to talk about our day, the person at the supermarket that was being very slow and bossy. How, how has that changed the way that we tell stories as a, as a collective?
1: Uh. I think collective is, is maybe the right word for it because, you know, I, I, I'm like anybody. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. In so many ways, it happened so fast. And I think we're still trying to catch up to the narrative capabilities and restrictions um, that social media has created for us. So in some, in some ways, I think this collective storytelling... Um, which is, in, you know, similar to oral storytelling. You know, of, of, of all is it's it's similar to that. We have this sort of collective mass of stories that are that move like tides, right? Um, and the risk in that is that we lose the specificity and the power of a single story, right? Um, that it gets swallowed by this this all of these voices, these collective voices, right? And that's also its power, right? So um, how has it changed it? It's changed everything, right? And it's changed nothing, you know, The, the... I love to just remind my students, like, this is a very lo-fi art form, right? You need a pen, and you need some paper. Or, you know, if you're very stubborn, then you, okay, fine, you need your laptop. And, and that's it, right? It's it's black marks on white pieces of paper, essentially. Um, or a white screen, as the case may be. But... Um, you know the fundamentals of storytelling have not shifted. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just the platforms, right? So will that have a lasting effect on forms? I think in some ways it expands our possibilities, right? It, and it forces us to think about concision in new ways. Um, I don't I don't know what the long term effects of that will be, or or how that impacts literature. Right. But it certainly it certainly changes the way that we tell our own stories about who we are and um,
0: and where we're going. Well, that's a good segue, too, because you are an author of narrative nonfiction um, Mm -hmm. and a professor of narrative nonfiction. Um, Why do you think some people are before we get into your personal writings? Why do you think people are, are are drawn to telling their own stories? Um, and why do we relate to hearing other people's stories?
1: I think that goes back to that very primal truth that we tell stories and we take in stories to learn how to live. And that is an, an endless education. And um, and so, you know, on on, on the one hand, um, I think we write and tell our own stories for lots of different reasons. But primary amongst them is is hopefully we recognize that our stories signify, right? They mean, and they have a place in this dialogue, past, present, and future. Um, And so when we tell our own stories, we contribute to that dialogue, which is bigger than us. And I think that's that belies the impulse to make any kind of art, right, to make something bigger than us, to contribute to something bigger than us and to fit ourselves into that uh, stream of narrative. I think we read these stories for the same reason, to tap into that framework, to tap into that universality, to recognize ourselves, to see ourselves reflected back, um, and to learn something about what it means to be a living, breathing, feeling, sentient being mm-hmm. on this planet right now. Um, so, yeah.
0: So, what true you to write, I have to ask, because mm-hmm. I know for everyone it's a slightly different reason. And... Growing up, I think a lot of people are drawn to storytelling that's... Not everyone sticks with it. So, um, mm. what, what compels you to write, Professor?
1: Um, I think I write because I love language, right? It's a very basic, basic impulse. I think that I, like a lot of writers, was just mesmerized by the possibilities of language really young. And that never left. And how that little seed got planted or nurtured, you know, it, it, all, of, all of my speculations could be true and they could all be false. But in whatever way and for whatever reason, I just, um, I, I felt and experienced a lot of wonder through language. And I thought if I could create that for somebody else, what magic, what a superpower that could be, right? To take this very, um, old, basic, you know, form, uh, medium and make someone feel something across time and distance. And I can't imagine a greater, a greater privilege, a greater thrill,
0: a greater joy than that. That's wonderful. Um, and as such, you do have a book out, um, it's called If Only You People Could Follow Directions. Uh, tell us about the book.
1: That book I wrote uh, in large part because I wanted to tell a truer story about addiction. And um, my father was a drug addict and an alcoholic. And he died when yeah, at 44 when I was 17. And my brother uh, is a drug addict. He's in recovery now. Um, and the way that we grew up was really idiosyncratic because of that, right? And, and, um, and yet, very different than all of the narratives that I had heard about addiction, which were these very sort of, you know, traditional narratives of struggle, sobriety, and riding off into the sunset. Or struggle, more struggle, death. And there's a, a, you know, and obviously there's a much larger cultural narrative about drug addiction that, you know, paints drug addicts as bad people, criminals. Um, and so I wanted to contribute to that story in, in the best way that I, that I knew, which is to write about these very dimensional men and, and even more so the women who uh, loved, supported and lost them. So this, you know, even though there's a lot of addiction in this book and stories of people who are suffering with addiction, it's a very funny book, I think. It's a it's a funny story. Um, so that was the impetus behind it. You know, I'm really interested in the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and and how we have a power kind of uh, we have a superpower, which is we get to tell that narrative in any way we want, right? In any way that serves um, serves our truth, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word.
0: And uh, uh, what are you working on now? I just finished um, my
1: second book, which is a collection of essays about women and wonder, which is another thing I talk a lot about in my classes, um, you know, which is I'm um, defining Stendhal's definition of wonder, mm-hmm. um, which is the conflation of terror and awe. So, um, experiences of that and the creative imperative. The imperative to create humans and the imperative to create art and how women navigate those
0: two, those two poles. That sounds awesome. Um, I want to go back to what it takes to write and what it takes to write nonfiction in just a minute, but since you brought up terror and awe, um, since it is almost Halloween, um, what compels us to tell stories that scare us? Like, what's the appeal of, of a thrill or of, of an un... Why, why do we intentionally uh, regale ourselves with unpleasant narratives?
1: I don't know, except to say that I think... You know, part of what we do when we read story and part of why we turn to story is to navigate these complicated experiences, but in a really low stakes way. Right. So we could read a story that scares us and in some ways practice the experience, navigate the experience without the actual risk of being hurt. Um, so life is scary, right? And so it makes sense that you know we would want to navigate those stories that let us deal with it in a way that in which we have more control. Um, it, it, and it also, you know, it also just scary stories thrill us, right? They make us feel something, and um, and in and, and in that way, it's it's a way of preempting our own inevitable inevitable mortality, right? <laughs> I mean I think all I really believe that all good stories are about death. They're about, you know, the ultimate stakes which are are, you know, it's that we will die. This will end. Our lives will end. And so all story in some way is interested in that. Any story worth its salt is interested in um death and mortality and that's always you know if not explicitly in the narrative right under the surface there it's right under the surface and so scary stories take what's right under the surface and they bring it to the fore right in Mm -hmm. a way that allows us to do it without getting
0: hurt yeah that's quite insightful um So going back to, like, the process, as it's often put in a big pair of quotes, um, what do you think um, makes for, you know, you're a practitioner of narrative nonfiction, what do you think makes for good nonfiction writing, Mm -hmm. especially if it's memoiric um, or Mm self-reflective? It's
1: a big question. Um, lots of things, right? But I I think a sense of stakes is huge. A sense that the writer is interested in a question. I think the best nonfiction is girded by a central question, and the writer's job is to refine that question, not necessarily to answer it. The best nonfiction recognizes the limitations of our own authority. So the writer is able to uh, embrace their own doubt, Mm -hmm. their own fear, Mm -hmm. their own questions, their own limitations in an active way. Um, I think nonfiction that tends to fall flat is any time the writer is approaching the page from a place of having already figured it out or believing that they have it already figured out and their job therefore is just to transcribe experience onto the page right and readers feel that right away we're intuitive creatures (laughs) so um and and you know we have the hopefully most of us have a great deal of emotional intelligence um so there's no discovery in that when you read a story like that but um, nonfiction writers have this opportunity to be dilettantes in some way. We get to toil in the muck of the world and then return back to the page with experience but no sort of quote-unquote wisdom. Mm-hmm. A- and I love writing from that place of not knowing, of writing from a place of being a very interested um, uh, dilettante, right? I mean, someone who who is vested but an expert in nothing and but my my strength you know all writer strengths is narrative right I can take I can take something um that I know very little about and I can and I can create a narrative out of it um so that's those are some of the things that make I think for good nonfiction narrative nonfiction writing
0: and how does that compare to fiction do you
1: think I mean, in, in lots of there are lots of similarities, right? I mean, the craft fundamentals are are largely the same. Uh, the way that we create character through significant sensory details, through gesture and voice and dialogue, all of that is is comparable. The way that we control uh, the speed of story and the energy of narrative is comparable. I think the biggest difference between fiction and nonfiction maybe is, is, you know, in nonfiction, there's, there's a space saved for reflection. And so that old adage, you know, show, don't tell, um, in nonfiction is, is show and tell, Mm -hmm. right. And your job as the narrator in nonfiction is to navigate us through both modes of, of rhetoric, right? So um, so I, I would say that reflective space is, is maybe the biggest difference.
0: Interesting. Um, I know there was an event you wanted to plug, but before we get to that, um, are there any authors that inspire you?
1: Oh, so many, so many, Adam. Uh, Annie Dillard is, is, I think, my oldest, dearest mentor. Uh, her work I go back to again and again and again. I'll probably read her until the day I die. Um, But nonfiction writers, you know, who I love, Mary Carr, Amy Dillard, uh, Philip Lopate, I'm really enjoying Melissa Phoebos these days, Leslie Jameson, Um, I could go on and, and on.
0: Um, perhaps a risky question and tell me so are there any and we can just go with dead authors um, (laughs) you don't so much care for that you feel have been uh, too overrated by society ooh yeah this is this is the money question (laughs) this is a big
1: one well don't ever let her hear this but (laughs) (laughs) Um, I didn't I didn't care for Wild very much really yeah it's just don't tell anyone, but I love her "Dear Sugar" column. So, Cheryl Strayed, you still have a place in my heart. Um, there, there are there are bad writers, but it, it it doesn't serve anyone to
0: no to trot them out. No, certainly it doesn't. Um, I I guess I one more question before we get to the event. Why does um. Why do you feel that good writing often doesn't get translated into good filmmaking or good adaptations? Mm. That's an interesting question. In fact, I just
1: was listening to an interview the other day uh, with Toni Morrison on a podcast uh, from, I, I would say, the late 90s. Um, about why she wasn't thrilled with her the film adaptations of Beloved. I mm-hmm. think Oprah did it, right?
0: Yeah, I think she did. And Jonathan Demme directed it, I believe.
1: You would know better than I. But <laughs> um, so I mean, what what Toni Morrison said is is just there's so much interiority in. In novels that you just can't access necessarily in film, right? And it makes sense. There, you know, there's a a kind of um, nuance of thought that, or muscularity of thought, of reflection, right, of of consciousness that is harder to access in film. I, I, I don't know that it can't be done, and certainly there are some. Decent adaptations, although none come to mind at the moment. But um, you know, you're working with 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 different mediums, so you're you know, you're just in some ways they're sort of like very different animals. I don't know. I, I I don't know exactly why, except to say that there's there's a there's a subtlety of language that can't necessarily be accessed in in picture form interesting
0: Um, I know I said that would be our last question but one more did occur to me that I thought would be kind of important because as we started thinking about um, adaptations I thought about the novel and the movie Fight Club Um, Mm -hmm. what happens um, when a work comes to identify something dangerous or comes to be identifiable with something dangerous can you clarify? What do you mean by yeah, that? Yeah, so, um, so Fight Club, as best I understand it, um, did not start out as an instruction manual for sort of some of the rage we seem to have as a society today, mm-hmm. but now has come to be sort of concurrently defined with it. What happens when the meaning of a work changes in retrospect?
1: Hmm. Well, what happens is the meaning of the work changes in retrospect, right? I, I, you know, I mean, I don't know that, you know, much can be done with it. I mean, except, I don't know that I have any sort of insight into that, except to say that when you make art, the minute you put that art into the world, it ceases to belong to you. And that, um, that's my only actual insight or experience with something like Mm -hmm. that, right? That, you know, and, and that often I think surprises people, right? I mean, we understand it intellectually, but it's very different when you um, experience it, right. And so people will do with it what they will, mm-hmm. right? It is not it's not your it's not your body, right? So if you put it out into the world, you have to anticipate that that art object, whatever that art object might be, is now in somebody else's control right and they can do with it they can interpret it they can feel it they can use it in in any way that they want and that's both beautiful and terrifying um but it's part of the it's part of the process right Mm um i'm teaching a class next semester called the literature of addiction and we're going to look at these narratives, right, that, I mean, this is part of what we're looking at in this class, that, you know, there's this narrative about addiction that, um, in a lot of ways doesn't belong to the people who experience it. And so that's part of the, the risk in, in any sort of storytelling pursuit, but it's also part of the opportunity, right, to reclaim our own narratives. Um... So that's, that's what I can
0: offer about that, I think. I think that's wonderful. Um, you asked me before we started if you could use this interview as a chance to promote something. Um, would you like to do that now?
1: I would. All right. I uh, want everyone to know about the Bogart Student Reading Series, which is a brand new event series. Um, that is happening. Our first one is happening October 25th, Friday, 7 to 9 p.m., At The Nest, we have creative writers, Denison's creative writers, reading from their own original work, and uh, we're going to have food and drinks and um, a wonderful intermission dance performance by Cezanne, the Latin dance team. So, the idea is um, I want to help support and cultivate this networking literary community on campus. So, everyone's invited to come and participate. We're going to save a few slots for people who want to sign up on the spot, open mic style, and, or just come and listen and, and, and get to know the creative writers on campus and, and uh, have a blast.
0: That sounds like a wonderful time. That sounds like a full evening, actually, with the dance people there. Yeah,
1: it's going to be fun.
0: wonderful. Um, That sounds absolutely great. Well, uh, we are just about out of time. I want to thank you, Professor. Uh, I think we've really gotten kind of a a whole history of writing in the mix of this interview, from (laughs) campfires and saber-toothed tigers to the era of complaining on Facebook. Um, Is there anything you'd like to add before we go, Professor.
1: No, thank you so much, Adam.
0: It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. That's it for me. Thank you for listening to The Coffee Hour.